The preaching of God's Word is found in Ezra chapter 6 and verses 16 through 22. You'll remember last week we touched on the completion of this temple that is, as noted in verse 15, is completed on the third day of the month Adar, which was the sixth year of the reign of Darius the king, roughly 15 to 20 years between the beginning and ending of the temple, acknowledging those trials that lay between the beginning and ending of it. Now what happens? Well, we're told, and so give attention to the word of God, Ezra 6, 16 through 22. The children of Israel, the priests and the Levites, and the rest of the children of the captivity kept, kept the dedication of this house of God with joy and offered at the dedication of this house of God an hundred bullocks, two hundred rams, four hundred lambs, and for a sin offering for all Israel, twelve he-goats according to the number of the tribes of Israel. And they set the priests in their divisions and the Levites in their courses for the service of God, which is at Jerusalem as it is written in the book of Moses. And the children of the captivity kept the Passover upon the 14th day of the first month. For the priests and Levites were purified together, all of them were pure, and killed the Passover for all the children of the captivity and for their brethren, the priests, and for themselves. And the children of Israel, which were come again out of captivity, and all such as had separated themselves unto them from the filthiness of the heathen of the land, to seek the Lord God of Israel, did eat, and kept the feast of unleavened bread seven days with joy, for the Lord had made them joyful, and turned the heart of the king of Assyria unto them, to strengthen their hands in the work of the house of God, the God of Israel. These verses before us present a very joyous occasion, a joyous people. And you'll see that word come up several times as it is toward the beginning, verse 16, that they kept the dedication of this house of God with joy. And you'll see it again throughout as it comes up, particularly toward the end. Verse 22, that they kept the feast of unleavened bread seven days with joy. And the reason for all of this joy is what is mentioned For the Lord had made them joyful. Now, brethren, I trust that we are convinced that more joy in God would be a good thing to receive. Greater delight in God. However, it may be that we struggle with knowing what to make of joy because sometimes those who care not for God's word criticize the church and say you need more joy and we instantly respond and say listen you don't understand joy and obedience they go together and yet we may become perplexed and say how do these relate is it possible that if I were more joyous that I would loosen my grip upon holy things is it possible that if I hold more closely to holy things that my joy will necessarily shrivel Well, here before us is a great help in seeing the role, the cause as well of joy. Does it lead to a feeling, an emotional centered type of religion? Is it that which leads to carelessness in God's worship and the eruption of ungoverned ways of worship? Does it lead to presumption and carelessness before God? And the clear answer based on this passage is absolutely not. What we see instead is where the Lord increases joy, we see the Lord as well increasing devotion to God. So that where joy increases and abounds, far from there being less interest in God, less concern about His worship, less interest in obedience, it abundantly grows it abounds and multiplies you can see that in this section notice a couple things simply that we're aware from the text you have in verses 16 and 17 this joyous dedication of the new temple 
There is a multitude of offerings, a hundred bullocks, two hundred rams, four hundred lambs, and sin offerings for all Israel, twelve male goats, representative of the twelve tribes. Now, we read earlier in 1 Kings 8 of the dedication of Solomon's temple. Now, it's something for us to think of how much blood would have issued from a hundred bulls, plus two hundred Rams plus 400 lambs. It's something we ought to remember. When we see these numbers rattled off, it's representative of animals' sacrifice which blood was spilled forth, testifying of our need of blood, which is, of course, in the Lord Jesus Christ. But as much as we may think as here, remember what was mentioned in 1 Kings 8, that different than the hundred bullocks, 200 rams, 400 lambs of the passage before us, Solomon offered 22,000 oxen. He offered 120,000 sheep. And so there are a couple of things here to think of for a moment. One is, there is a great inferiority in contrast to what was going on in Solomon. And yet, brethren, remember this. It is no less than sincerely offered and by grace received. This can be helpful for us just as an aside. We can look to former generations and say, look what they did. Look at the amount of things they accomplished. Look what they brought to God. Look what they used in service to God. And we look around and say, what do we have? Whereas we ought to remember this. God in no place condemns or ridicules the smaller number, but he receives it gladly. And so let us not be those who would despise the day of small things, but see that as we joyously serve the Lord, it is that which well pleases God. Notice further in the text, verse 18, the priests and the Levites are set in order. It says that they're set in their divisions And the Levites in their courses. This is setting up for the regular ministry of the priests and Levites. That the priests would have seasons that they were appointed to be at the temple while others would be away. Levites would have seasons to be there while then they would return to their own place. And so the temple worship would ever be ongoing. Now no one priest or no one Levite was always to be there at all times tending to these things. And so there were the courses being set up, which gives us a, uh, an insight that they're setting up not for the temporary flash of devotion. They're setting up for the ongoing and long-standing service and worship of God. Notice as well in verses 19 through 22, there's the Passover that's kept. The priests and Levites are purified together with all Israel that's present, but also this Greatly encouraging testimony that it is as well. Verse 21, all such as had separated themselves from unto them from the filthiness of the heathen of the land. It's speaking of Gentile converts being brought in. They were among the nations, but they've separated themselves from the darkness of idolatry and the godless ways. And they've purified themselves and joined with the covenant people of God. What a blessing to see this, that as the Lord is bringing together his restored work, his reformed people, it's not just Israel that's being blessed, but the nations are being brought in. The gospel is going forth. And let's always remember this, that whenever there is biblical reformation, whenever there is God-sent blessing, It's not that, well, look, it's going to be reformed and it's going to be stodgy and sort of deathly and cold and frail. No, it's quite opposite. It's then that there's the groundswell of blessing that comes, that people are brought in. We've seen this throughout church history from the early church, the medieval church, the Reformation church, the 1900s and so on, that whenever there is a return to God's word, there is a clarity of the preaching of the gospel that God then blesses and brings people in. Well, you'll notice that as pointed out, 
that there's much made of joy. And so you see it as noted early on, verse 16, they kept the dedication of this house of God with joy. And verse 22, they uh, kept the feast of unleavened bread seven days with joy. For the Lord had made them joyful. What's going on in all of this? Well, what we see is the outworking of God-wrought joy in his people. What does it look like? What does it show to be? What can we say about joy when it is divinely given? This will help. It will instruct us. It may correct us. It may guide and encourage us. But what the Lord here presents is the evidence of a joyous people that are rightly rejoicing because God had made them glad, which can help us to remember. It's not wrong for us to ask of the Lord, O Lord, increase our joy. So long as we know that we're asking for not the earthly passing joy, but we're asking for that which God would give unto us for the advance of his cause and kingdom, for the sanctifying of his people, for the gathering in of sinners. So consider three things that display a people made glad. Firstly, their focus upon the Lord. Secondly, they're conforming conforming all to God. And thirdly, their reliance upon grace. When we see these three things, we see indeed evidence of true and God-wrought joy. So firstly, then focus upon the Lord. You can see throughout that as they're made joyous, as God had made them joyful, their focus shifts away from themselves and focuses upon God. And so it's God-centered. It's unfortunate that expression centered has often become a word that means minimized. So you have this continued talk of the gospel-centered life and Christ-centered this and Christ-centered that. We have no problem with Christ-centered or gospel-centered or God-centered anything. But let's be sure that when something is Christ-centered or God-centered or gospel-centered, it's not as if nothing else is attached. It means that all that is being done in God's worship and doctrine and practice and government is being governed by and directed to the Lord Jesus Christ. So it's not, in other words, the gospel as if worship is unimportant. It's not Christ as if holiness is unimportant. We speak in terms of something being centered, gospel-centered, Christ-centered, God-centered. It's helping us think through how the other things are held together. And what you see here is that all things are held together by a focus upon the Lord. They're prioritizing God. And so what happens? They dedicate the temple. And so here it's been built. And so they, like Solomon before them many years prior, So now they dedicate the temple. And as we saw in 1 Kings chapter 8, what is central to the dedication of the temple? Well, we know what's going on. There's prayer, there's sacrifices, there's blessing. We don't have all of that mentioned here, but that's why we read earlier from 1 Kings 8, because it tells us what is taking place at a dedication. But all of those activities are actually focused upon their central petition that the world would know your God, that the world would know you, that the world would know that there is no other God but Jehovah. They're not interested in their names being pronounced and published and propagated. Their sole desire is that this which God has ordained, the ministry of the temple, the temple itself, the activities of the temple, oh, that God would so bless this, that it would go forth and cause the world to to see and to know that Jehovah, He is God. What we see here is one instance that is actually true 
in all God's people. The overarching desire that matures and grows and multiplies in the individual is that God would be honored. That's the desire of the Christian. Early on, when we're immature in our Christian life, we have it mixed up with different things, but it's there by seed and it starts to grow and we start to see these things and the Lord, as it were, whittles certain things away from us and He severs other things from us. He's pruning us and He causes us to bear fruit to His praise. That's the desire. Think of Elijah when he is contending with the false prophets of Baal. If you had interviewed Elijah, Elijah Tell me what it is you want. What is it, Elijah, that you hope this generation and future generations learn from this uh, incident? He would have said without hesitation that the world would know that Jehovah, he is God. That's what it is. We desire that the world would know Jehovah is God. Joshua Here you are exhorting the people of God. What is it you want them to know? That Jehovah, He is God. If you would worship Baal, go worship Him. But know this, as for me and my house, we will serve Jehovah. It's a focus upon Him. It's prioritizing God. It's what makes men and women and children who are believers increasingly able to to suffer loss in this world. If the things they suffer loss in this world are yet being used for the advance of the glory of God. You look at the trajectory of some public ministries and you hear at times it's published, it's absurd how it's praised by men, but they have strategic plans for their ministry. And this is what we're going to do. Listen, our plan is after this grows, you know, uh, you know, tenfold, we're going to plant another of our ministries in Florida. And when this gets really rocking and rolling, you know, our pastor is going to be flying there one Lord's Day and back the other. And we're going to be doing great things. And the ministry is going to be named this minister's name ministry. And all these things take off and so on. How contrary to the actual ministries recorded in Scripture. Who was the greatest prophet of all Old Testament prophets? John the Baptist. And John the Baptist says it so beautifully when he says this, He must increase. I must decrease. I want nothing more than for men to forget my name if it would be that they know Christ's name. What was Paul's overarching concern, his earnest desire? Well, he tells us, he says, I am going forth preaching Christ that men would not think highly of me, but that where I go, my sole concern is that men would know Christ. You see, this is the ministry of the gospel. It's in the shadows and types and pictures of the Old Testament. It's in the realities of the new and the gospel ministry that continues. It's ever focused upon the Lord. What do you want? Do you want riches? No, I don't want riches. Do you want your house to be better? Well, it could be helpful perhaps, but that's not what I want. Do you want your health to be okay? Well, you know what? I'm not against good health, but that's not what I'm aiming at. What I want, what I long, what I yearn and pray for is that God would receive praise from men. It's amazing, isn't it? How this is so clear when your eyes and my eyes are open to it. Think of this psalm, Psalm 67, a precious psalm to us. And listen to this connection. God be merciful unto us and bless us and cause his face to shine upon us. And someone says, see, you're mistaken. The psalmist and uh, God is actually saying, we ought to seek our good. This is what we should do. You know, there are actually cottage industries within Christianity that are banking upon this approach saying, listen, you need to have me time and self-investment time and, you know, you need to take breaks and don't burn out for Christ. You know, that's a life wasted. 
But notice what the psalmist says beyond that. Why is it that the psalmist is asking, why is it that we sing, God, be merciful to us. God, let your light shine upon us. Here it is. That thy way may be known upon earth. Thy saving health among all nations. Let the people praise thee. See, it's comprehensive. Any blessing we're seeking is ultimately not in order that it would terminate in us or upon us. It's that we in turn would employ it to the advance of God's kingdom. So this actually helps us in a number of things when we're thinking, you know, is it wrong to seek Uh, some sort of advancement in uh, my job? No, it's not wrong to seek it. But the question is, why? Why do you seek it? Why do you seek more income? Why do you seek this house? Why do you seek a spouse? Why do you want children? You see, all these things that come to us are then oriented rightly because I want the focus to be on God. I want it to serve to God's glory. This is what happens. A people made glad prioritize God. You see, they exalt God. The multiplying of these peace offerings, the hundreds of sacrifices that are taking place, the blood that is gushing out. It was recorded by one of around Jesus' day, a couple hundred years around that, that on the Passover, the gutters would be filled with, as it were, Uh, the rush of blood of animals that would be uh, sacrificed. Such was the issue of blood flowing down. And you think, how much blood is being spilled? Well, think of this. You perhaps can donate blood. And someone puts the needle in your arm and pulls out a bag of blood. Brethren, that's just a little bit. You're fine to get up. You can move around and so on. Some of us get faint-hearted and whatever else. But you're okay. You're alive. And you think of what it is to bleed out an ox. You know, some who have hunted, they shoot the deer, they take the deer, and then they cut it appropriately, they hang it up so the blood issues out. And when you see that for the first time, it's astounding how much blood is in one creature. Hundreds of animals are going forth. And you know, as well as I, that this shedding of blood has a significance that is far more important than at first glance it would seem. Because even as we're told with such simplicity, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. What's going on? The multiplying of these peace offerings, the multiplying of the sin offering is a testimony that though God has privileged us, the glory is His And we stand accepted graciously by the blood of the substitute that was to come. In other words, it's a humbling of ourselves and it's an exalting of God. It's as if, in other words, God comes and says, look what I've done for you. Look what I've provided to you. And the humble believer responds and says, you've provided it in mercy and grace alone. I am unworthy of this. What do we deserve? We deserve to be the creatures whose blood is shed. That's what we deserve. But God be praised. He's established peace for us. Our sins are pardoned for us. You see, the focus is ever being brought back to God. Brethren, this doesn't change even in heaven. We're given crowns. And what happens to the crowns? It's not that we say nothing. We take them and we place them at the feet of Christ. And we say we're unworthy of these things were it not for you. It's your doing. You're the one who receives praise. You alone are glorious. We exalt Him. Worthy is the Lamb that was slain, that has washed us from our sins with His own blood. You see, brethren, the focus of a joyous people is always upon God. It's always prioritizing God. It's always exalting God. It doesn't deny the blessings. It doesn't deny these things. That gladdens them. But what happens is, 
It's as if the blessings that come transform us and cause us with an eruption of joy to give all glory back to God. If you've ever discovered something that you deem beautiful, you look at it and you keep looking at it and you even stare at it and you study it. You know, we're not saying that all that passes for, quote, art today is worthy of the name, but there are pieces of art that are well worth looking at, the texture, the color, the way that an artist can take hues and make it look as if that which is without light is actually shining. It's an amazing accomplishment that men accomplish that are skilled with paint brush and all of these things. We stare at it. We're amazed at it. We come back to it. We look at it again. You catch the fragrance that pleases your nose. And as you're walking perhaps through the woods, you now stop and you look around. Where's the flower? Where is that source? And you discover and what happens? You find yourself going to it to take it in more fully. It satisfied you And so you go back and find it and you think more upon it. This is true as well of God. God gives grace to us and we don't just say thank you while we keep on our way. We stop and we look to God and we give glory to Him. Remember the ten lepers? We'll come to that, Lord willing, in our treatment of the Gospel account. But God heals the ten and one returns to Christ. The nine are reproved by Christ, but the one who returns is commended. There's the mark of grace. The one who comes to give glory to God. Well, secondly, what else? Not only is it that they focus upon the Lord, they also bring all into conformity unto God. And so you'll notice this when it is, for instance, In verse 18, they set the priests in their divisions and the Levites in their courses for the service of God, which is at Jerusalem. Notice this expression, as it is written in the book of Moses. The standard of their actions that follow is the written word of God. Now notice this, the joy is intense, but the submission is is sincere. They're both real. They aren't opposite of one another. Now, one can exist without the other, meaning this, one can have feelings that are like joy while they rebel against God's word. And one can have the appearance of conformity when there is no joy. But where they are in truth possessed, they're brought together. Where there's true joy it leads to bringing all things under God according to His Word. And where one is truly bringing all things under God according to His Word, there's a delight in doing so. And so it is. The Lord's Word is the standard. That's what marks out the activities that take place by a joyous people. They're rejoicing in God. Now think of this, it makes sense, doesn't it? If we're rejoicing in God, what we do, what the God in whom we rejoice says, it'd be contradictory to say, you know what, I'm really glad in you, and yet to run contrary to his word. Could you imagine a child that would come to his father and say, Father, I'm so grateful for you. I love you so much. I know that you've told me to do this, but I'm not going to do it. It strike us immediately as absolutely contradictory. Whatever this child is feeling, it's not real joy and delight in the Father. But when we see a son come and say, some way or another, oh, Dad, I love you. Father, I'm thankful for you. What would you have me do? You start to see the sincerity of joy by the obedience. And what does Christ say? If you love me, keep my commandments. And yet people today say this. You talk a lot about Christ's commandments. We need Christ's love. And you wonder and say, 
Where's the disconnect? It's Christ who says, If you love me, keep my commandments. And yet there are those today who say, To talk of Christ's commandments is to talk in a language that is different than love. And yet, brethren, perhaps it is that they say that because as we talk about His commandments, there's little expression of joy. That can be a fault for those who take it and say, this is the standard. Is the standard a standard that is taken in love to Him who gives it? Now, we don't know. We're grateful, of course, that the Lord has given us His Word and He's not given us a video. But we wonder, what would it have looked like to look upon the faces of the elders of the Jews? What would it have been to look upon the face of Haggai and Zechariah, of Joshua and others with them? What would it have been to look upon Zerubbabel, as these things are being done. Whatever it would have looked like, it would have shown joy. So let us remember that whereas the standard of all the activity of those who are joyous is God's word, that the standard no way mitigates, takes away, or covers up the sincere expression of joy. You can see it, for instance, when David has learned his lesson. Do you remember as they're bringing the ark back from the Philistines and they have it on a cart? And this at first struggle makes us to struggle as David struggled, in fact. There they're walking, the oxen stumble, the cart tips, and what now is happening? The ark of the covenant is going to fall. Uzzah puts his hands up to steady the ark. He touches it. It says God is displeased and strikes Uzzah down. He kills him. Why? We say, what is, what's going on? And it's actually there in that text, but also well before it, God told his people the way of transporting the ark. He didn't have to say, you don't do it this way. You don't do it that way. You don't do it this other way or a different way that I'm not even mentioning. He says, this is how you transport it. You put poles through those rings and you carry it on the shoulders. No man touching the ark. And so though Uzzah was motivated both by doubtlessly respect, not wanting to see the ark fall, and to some extent ignorance, and perhaps even instinct, something's falling, you catch it. Yet because it transgressed the commandment of God, he struck dead. David is at first angered by this. But then he saw the truth. And so when God blesses Obed-Edom, where the ark was there for a while, he comes back and you hear the language. When they walked, there's difference now, eight paces, they sacrificed to the Lord. It's been reformed. The standard of God is brought together. But what is David doing in the front with other men? He's not gloomily moaning some monosyllabic nonsense, dreary-eyed and overly burdened. He's leaping with joy in his delightful service to God. Brethren, here's the point. As things are brought into conformity, far from that killing our joy... It is to be a further expression of our joy unto God. Notice, in conforming all unto God's word, they make this resolution for the continued and long-term service to God. The divisions are established of the priests. The courses of the Levites are established. This is something, by the way, when it is in the opening of the gospel accounts, You have it that John the Baptist's father is there in the time of his course serving as priest. It's hearkening back to these things. It was his season to serve. And then a season would pass and he returned to his home. 
So in other words, what's taking place is both an activity of obedience and an activity of resolution for the future. They're setting up things according to God's word and they're looking in faith to the future saying, we are doing what we can to ensure by God's blessing that his worship continues. What a beautiful expression of joy that is. It's not just we've got it for ourselves, but there's a looking forward to the generations to come that God would be worshipped. That's the delight of a joyous heart. They're bringing things into the conformity of God's word. And within that conformity, they're taking the measures God has established that for generations to come, there would be the worship of his name. You see, the desire of a joyous heart is not only that it would worship God, but that generations to come would worship God. Now, we don't have divisions of priests and courses of Levites and other such things, but the principle doubtlessly remains that we delight in God and we start to pray, God, bless that the rising generation would worship you. Perhaps we do things like we give of our financial resources to those that are publishing faithful works. Perhaps it is we take our time and we sit down with little children and we teach them in the ways of God's worship. Perhaps we don't have children. We sit down with those that are in the congregation and we're purposely seeking them out to give them a word in season or on our own or with our spouse. We have time together to pray by name for the children in our lives that God would be pleased to bless. And we look even beyond that if God should bless still to their children, saying, oh God, would you raise this up? Put this in context to our own congregation. We bless God that there is a door open to us. But we ought to look for generations to come. Oh God, when my body is eaten with worms, bless that this would remain to the worship of your name, that you would raise up godly men, boys now who will become men to be elders and ministers, young girls who will be faithful women, and that from perhaps their union and marriage, there would be children given that would rise up and bless your name. There is a desire to serve, yes, a desire to worship God faithfully, yes, And there's a desire to see that God worshiped faithfully for generations to come. Well, thirdly, you see there is a reliance upon God. The joyous heart, exalted as it is with satisfaction, elated as it is with joy and gladness, never moves an inch from its full and firm reliance upon God and His grace. Some people speak or act or sometimes criticize openly this idea that if you're joyous, you can't be penitent. If you're rejoicing in God, you have no place for spiritual sorrow. Or if you're rejoicing in God, you shouldn't make much of the confession of your sins. You know, I hear you confess your sins a lot. You should be more joyous. You know, instead of confessing your sins, why don't you thank God that your sins are forgiven? Well, last I checked, those things aren't mutually exclusive. That one can confess and ought to confess their sins. And as they do, to rejoice in God. And as they rejoice in God, and God brings to their conscience a sense of their own sins that remain, they come again to plead the blood of Christ and to know the pardon of their sins. It's not that we graduate unto joy and pass through the lower grades of confessing our sins and looking to Christ as our Savior. It's that we are growing in our looking to Christ, both in the confession of our sins and the rejoicing in Him as our Savior. And you see this. What is it that the children of Israel do? Well, they keep the Passover. So the priests, the Levites, together with the people of Israel, as well as 
Oh, blessed be God that this is true. Those who were there in the land that separated themselves and joined themselves into God's people, they kept the Passover. What was the Passover? Here it is. The angel of death is coming. Israel. Remember that in Egypt? What's an amazing expression is in the book of Exodus when this Passover is first mentioned. It says when the angel of death is going through, God says when the blood is there on the lintels, the doorposts and the lintel, it is that I will see it. And he says, I will pass over the door and the angel of death will pass by. It's an amazing expression. What God is saying is, I will stand in the way. I will be the one who protects you. And an amazing foreshadow of Christ, think of this. Paul says, Christ, our Passover, has been crucified for us. Christ is there nailed upon a wooden beam. His blood is is there staining its wood. And he is there as our Passover, taking the angel of death, as it were, the plague upon himself. And we who find shelter are protected by him. It's beautiful, the connections in God's word. Well, all of this, of course, the Passover that's observed by those here mentioned is an anticipation of that Lamb of God that should be slain. What a beautiful expression, John the Baptist pointing at Christ. Behold the Lamb of God. Not the Lamb of this prophet, not the Lamb of that king, not the Lamb of that rich person, not the Lamb of that poor person, but the Lamb that God provides is now come. Christ, our Passover, is here. So understand this. The temple's built. Favor's been shown both by Darius and the governor on this side of the river, Tatnai, and all is going forth. Celebrations erupt. All elation is present. And what do they do? They remember to observe the Passover. They whose hearts have been made joyful continue their joy in remembering the promise of the Savior. Brethren, we, when our hearts are joyful, are to remember not only the promise of the Savior, but the propitiation of the Savior, the Savior Himself. All of this expresses a reliance upon Christ. It's a looking again to the Lord Jesus Christ. Here, God has done great things for us. You would think that perhaps, as the world would reason, look what God's done. Therefore, I'm going to go about my business and just be happy. No. God's done great things for us. We flee afresh and anew to the Savior. We take Him and we rely upon Him. Whatever God has done to advance me, it will never advance me beyond my need for Christ. I will ever stand in need for Him. That's the mark of a graciously joyous heart. God never, as it were, gets us to a point where he says, now you've made it, go and live your life. He blesses us, and in blessing us, he blesses us with firmer faith, with greater understanding to embrace the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Notice there's ever the remembrance of deliverance as well with the Feast of Unleavened Bread. The Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread would ultimately in many ways be joined together. But the day after the Passover was finished, the Feast of Unleavened Bread would be observed. The Jews were to have their bread, not at leaven, because they had to make haste. And this would be a recurring memorial to them of God having delivered them from their bondage to Egypt. What's being said? Here you are in the promised land. Here you are with the temple built. Here you are with prophets, with a priest, with others around you. But remember always who your deliverer is. It's God. So brethren, reliance upon grace. Well, as we close, here we have a helpful insight
to the mark of true joy. This will help us as we sort of assess where the world is and unfortunately where some in the church are as well. If someone comes and says, you know, I think you need to be more joyous, we shouldn't dismiss that. We need to take that on and say, maybe that's true. But if they go on to say, you know, I see you concerned about the right worship of God. I see that you're concerned about obedience to God. And then in light of that, they say, I think you need to be more joyous. They still may be right, but not in the way that they understand, not in the way that they think, because they may be right that we have these things in order, and yet we aren't showing the right joy that there is to be. However, if they are implying that concern over worship and obedience and service to the Lord is somehow other than joyous, the error is on their side. Joy and obedience, joy and pure worship, joy and zeal for God are far from being contraries. They are harmonious fellows together hand in hand. But then the question comes. In our circles, we tend to emphasize purity of worship, right doctrine, faithful obedience, sanctification, holiness, and so on. That's right. But brethren, is it our emphasis because of the good things that God has done and made us joyful? Are we joyful in our right worship? Or if someone were to look upon the way we talk about it, the way we participate in it, where they say, yeah, I get that right worship is important, but really, you know, I'm not contradicting the right worship point, but I wonder, is there joy? Is there gladness? Is there delight in God? We shouldn't look upon delight in God and joy and gladness and so on as somehow suspect so long as the joy and delight in God is in the way of God's ordinance. These two are to be joined together. We're right to criticize those who divorce it. But brethren, let us be sure that we have it married together. Joy and obedience, joy in God and purity of worship, all these things. Brethren, see as well the great blessing that is bestowed when God makes His people joyful. The blessings are multifold. They are not just for the here and now, they are for the hereafter, but it's also for the generations to come. When God looks and with favor blesses his people, he's doing a work to that concrete iteration of his people that will be a blessing for his people yet to come. You know, soon enough, what would happen? Joshua would die. Haggai and uh, Zechariah would die. Others would come up, but the temple would stand there. And though there would be corruptions that come, yet there would be a witness of the one true and everlasting God. We seek a blessing in our day, for our day indeed, but we seek it for days to come as well. There have been people who prayed for us unwittingly. They didn't know our names. They didn't know our faces. They, in their own trials, were brought to difficulties and they said, Oh God, raise up men and women who will love you. And the Lord has raised us up in mercy. And that's an answer to their prayers. People we don't know by name yet. That soon enough in heaven we'll see and we'll bless God at the tapestry of providence how he's brought these things together. But let us be as well faithful for the generation to come. That we would be earnest to seek the advance of his kingdom not only for our day, but that when we're long dead and buried, there would be faithful churches by God's blessing advancing the cause of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, what do we do with this? We pray for it. We'll see how this connects in time to come. But brethren, did you hear Solomon? There's an implicit thing here. Solomon says in 1 Kings 8, when your people are in a foreign land and they remember their sins and they pray toward this place, hear and bring them back. What do you have going on? They're brought back. Well, you put it together, 
there was a season when the people who were in exile were in earnest praying, Oh God, bring us back. Turn the light of thy countenance upon us. Look upon us in mercy and advance us. Lord, bless and pity us. Shine on us with thy face. All of these prayers would have been multiplied in these foreign lands. And what was the issue from those prayers? God heard in heaven. God answered the prayer. And now you see something of the fulfillment here. There were years that passed. And yet, it's an amazing connection. We don't have time to develop. Daniel is there. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They'll be laboring in the scenes as well. Nehemiah's laboring as well in time to come. All these things taking place. God orchestrating this great work. And they're petitioning God. God, arise and take up your cause. And bless your people. And you see it. He does. Have you grown weary in praying for God to bless His cause. Here is black and white print of God that tells us your weariness and my weariness is ignorant. We stand ignorant of the promises of God when we grow weary. We say, I've prayed for 15 years. They were in captivity for generations. We say, you know what? I've prayed seriously for a long time. So did our forefathers. God would have us pray and not give over. God would have us wait upon Him. God would have us earnestly beseech Him. And yet He would have us do so confident that He who has promised is faithful and He will tend to His cause and prosper His cause and advance His cause and the gates of hell shall not prevail. Oh, God, be praised that He will not forsake His people. Here we stand a handful, and there are other handfuls scattered throughout this nation, throughout our city even, a handful compared to the millions and billions of this world. And yet we take great comfort in this. Greater is He that is in us than he that is in the world. The King that governs the nations, understand this, is your King. The Lord Jesus Christ is at work in ways that you and I don't see or discern as yet. And yet, at the perfect time, just as he turned the heart of Darius, just as he worked in times before and worked in times after, so he will bring these things together and we will rejoice in God forever. Would you stand with me for prayer?